All right, there, saints. First Peter chapter 5. We're concluding this epistle this evening. Next Wednesday, we'll be in the book of Habakkuk. And, but as we conclude this, we don't want to start looking ahead too fast. We want to finish what we have before us. Peter himself is, as he's been giving exhortations, he's given exhortations to the, the, the church, he's given exhortations to husbands, to wives, to co-workers, he's given to the, the, the people who are under the governments he's placed them under. He's given them exhortations to those who are suffering. And what he does here in chapter 5 is he begins to give an exhortation to the shepherds and then to the church. So what you guys get to do tonight is, you know how when you were little and you had to bring your report card before your parents, and today this is my report card. And you guys get to mark on it, oh, this is good, oh, that's not so good, and, and uh, um, please don't shout it out loud during the message, I had asked you to that. But um, if you have to tell me you know, where I'm failing, just send an email to me. Um, if I accidentally hit the delete button, sorry. Um, just if I don't respond, know that I might have read it and, and uh, we'll go further. But no, um, it's a report card. It's a report card to the elders. And I think it's important because within this, we should understand what is required of the ministries, and especially the, the, the shepherds, the overseers. It's one of those things where as a, a wife, we look to the, the scriptures to what's a husband's ministry, right? Well, you're supposed to love me as Christ loved the church. I, we, 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 we covered that. To the wife, it, it's, it's respect your husband. And I think it's important as we look to what the, the roles are and what the, um, the ministry is, what Peter does is he looks to the ministry and rather than looking to say, this is what I've done in the ministry, I love what he does because he looks to Jesus and said, this is what he's done in the ministry. If you're going to be a shepherd, be like the chief one. And so tonight I give you my report card. Tonight we're going to check off the things that are okay, deal with the things that aren't. Now, now granted, granted, the Holy Spirit has been speaking to me, and he's been showing me, will continue to show me things that I need. So um, let's just jump on in. Here's my report card. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. The elders who are among you I exhort of whom I am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And then verse 5, likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. As we look to this, I love how Peter opens up initially to the elders, to those who are leadership within the church. Usually it's the older men, older spiritually, But to the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I love the the, the heart because he doesn't say to the, as he's writing now to um, to the church, to the Jews who are are going about to go through the, the difficulties, he didn't say to the elders who are over you. And I think this is key to the elders who are among you. See, we're we're not just superior in in a way to say, wow, this is, you know, I'm I'm over you all. Keep in mind that I have a role, you have a role. And over all of us is the authority of the scripture. And if you've been around for a while, we have, and, you know, have conversations we are very open and honest to say if there's anything that we're doing that you see is not in the scripture, then please bring it out because we want to walk in the scripture. But keep in mind that when we walk those things in the scripture, it's not just finding a verse and saying, well, this verse says we should be doing this, so let's do this. Keep in mind that there are certain things that scripture will, will talk about, but when we deal with church doctrine, church behavior, what we do is we look for four solid legs. And these are the things that we practice corporately. Other things you can, you can do on your own, but what we practice corporately is, is found in the Old Testament first. You see it being brought up, it taught on. And then the, the next leg is it's there in the Gospels. You see the Gospels teaching on that subject. And so within those first two, you have the Old Testament, you have the Gospels, and then you see it actually there in the book of Acts, where the early church begins to go through that process. And then lastly, it'll be taught on in the epistles. So if you want to come and say, you know, David danced before the Lord, I think that you, Lowell, need to bust the move while you're up there, just, you know, doing it. Ain't going to happen. But I, I think, I think what, just because David danced before the Lord doesn't mean that I'm going to be dancing before the Lord. You can dance before the Lord. It's okay, but we won't be practicing that, that corporately because you don't see it there in, in the book of, of, you know, the Gospels. You don't see the early church showing. You don't see Paul teaching on, on how to groove the move or anything like that. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't show and teach on that. And so because of that, because it's in the scripture and it's not grounded in all four of those areas, we won't practice that corporately. But where it does talk about teaching, it's taught on the Old Testament, taught on there, you know, Jesus taught. There in the book of Acts, it's taught. And in the epistles, he talks about, you know, the teaching, the leadership. So those are the things that we do work and we practice those things corporately. 
But we do see here, he says, the elders who are among you. In other words, there's a role. There's a role that we fulfill. And as that role, there are certain things that we should be moving towards and certain things that we should not be moving towards. So one, it's the elders who are among you. In other words, you're part of the body. And as part of the body, keep in mind that verse 2 makes this statement, shepherd the flock of God. And, and realize that as we look to this, verse 4 says when the chief shepherd appears. So we are all under the chief shepherd, and so we shepherd the flock of God. It, you have to understand that this church is not my church. It's not my flock. It's God's. Um, point blank, I, I love this church. I love the people in this church. But I did not purchase this church with my blood. Jesus Christ did. And as he puts overseers and elders in the church, they are stewards of what is his. It's not like we just control the church now. So he's still the, the chief shepherd. We still look to him. So it's important to realize that if you want to attain any type of leadership in the church, one of the first things you have to do is realize that <laughs> you're part of the body. You have a role within the body, but you're part of the body. You're not over the body. You're not up here and then the body's down here. So we're going to see in, in a little bit where you don't have this great separation between the clergy and the laity. Now that happened in certain denominations where the, the clergy had been lifted up to a point and laity was even, you know, refused, saying, well, you can only get the things that we teach you. You shouldn't have Bibles of yourself. And to me, feed yourself. Learn what God has. And so there shouldn't be this great separation between the clergy and the laity, between the, those who are the elders and the overseers and those who are simply part of the body. So it's important as we look to this to realize to the elders who are among you, I exhort, and here's Peter saying, I'm going to give you a stern teaching here. It says, I who am a fellow elder and I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter was in a very unique position being one of the disciples. And he makes a statement that he is a fellow elder. He's not the pastor of pastors. He's not Pope Peter. You know, he's, he's, he's a fellow elder. He doesn't put himself over the others. And Peter uniquely, I think, out of all the disciples, really has a good grasp on what it means to be, I'm not going to place myself over the others. He made that mistake once. I don't think he wants to make it again. Where the Lord said, listen, Tonight, all of you are going to stumble. All of you are going to flee. And Peter said, listen, looking at the rest, though they all, though they all, I would never. In fact, I'll even die for you. That's Peter. And they're all like, yeah, me too, me too. And the Lord would say to Peter, listen, Peter, you have to understand that tonight, before the rooster crows, you are going to deny me three times. Be careful when you try to put yourself over, over someone else to think that you're more spiritual, that you're more knowledgeable. And, and it's one of those things where 
regardless of what you are or what you've obtained to, realize that it's a gift of God. And it's only a gift of God because you're part of that flock. Peter does something absolutely amazing where he shows his position, but he shows that it has nothing to do with him. When he wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Peter would make a couple very unique statements within that epistle. Let me read it to you, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 9. Peter makes a statement, For I am the least of the apostles, whom not worthy to be called an apostle. That's what Paul makes the statement. I'm not even worthy. I'm the least of all apostles, Paul would say. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. Because, as Paul would declare, I persecuted the church. But then Paul makes this statement. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. So as Paul goes and he makes this statement, just as Peter is saying, I'm just a fellow among you, Paul is doing the same thing. He says, I'm just, I'm just an apostle. He says, I wasn't even worthy to be called an apostle, but by the grace of God, I am. And he said that this grace that God gave to him wasn't in vain. What does it mean? He says, I labored more abundantly than they all. He said, oh my goodness, when you see what I've done compared to what the other apostles have done, he says, man, he says, my, my labors are just, I got laundry list of what I've done. I've got three missionary journeys. I've got churches after churches. And I started Gentiles after Gentiles that have come to know the Lord. And yet Paul would go on and say this, yet it wasn't I, but the grace of God, which was in me. And I think it's important to realize that the truth is that if we have any giftings, that it's the grace of God. And so that if, if you know, God has given me the ability to communicate in such a way, it doesn't make me a better communicator than someone else. It just makes me a different communicator by the grace of God. This is what he made me. I'm, I'm okay with what he made me. And so we realize that here Peter says, I'm a fellow elder, and I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. For Peter to recognize here that he is this one who is among the elders, not above them, but among them. He's a fellow elder. But there was something specific about Peter is he was actually a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he literally would be there in, in the, um, the courtyard of the chief priest, and he would see what was going on. He would see the, the beatings of Christ there in that, that first time. He would deny the Lord, and as he would deny, the Lord would look to him, and he would see him eye to eye, and, and uh, the rooster would crow. At that point, Peter would weep and he'd leave the scene. But he's seen the sufferings of Christ. When he woke up there on the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane, he saw the, the great drops of blood, you know, the sweat. He saw the Lord pleading with him, would you, would you stay awake? Would you pray with me? He saw the sufferings of Christ. 
And also, he says, not only are the sufferings, am I a witness of the sufferings, he says, but I'm a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. There's a couple of things that are really important that, that Peter realizes is that no matter what he's done wrong, no matter what failures that he's had, when, when he said, you know, far be it from you to go to Jerusalem and be crucified, and he said, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter realizes that is not going to stop him from being a partaker of the glory. When he had simply, you know, denied the Lord three times and a rooster crows, now he realized that that is not going to stop him from being a partaker of the glory. When the Lord would go to Peter and he would ask him, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, I, I like you a lot. Love you like a brother. Jesus would ask him the second time, Peter, do you agape? Do you love me? And Peter would say the second time, Lord, I phileo, I love you like a brother. And the third time, Jesus would say, do you phileo me? Are, are you fond? Do you love me like a brother? And Peter said, well, you know all things. As he begins to weep, he says, you know, you know I phileo you. I love you like a brother. And he knows that that will not stop him from being a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Do you understand? No matter what he's done, no matter what he's done, he is going to be a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. He will be in heaven witnessing his Savior being exalted because his Savior shed the blood to forgive Peter of all of his sins, everything. And that blood that was shed for Peter was also shed for the other elders. And that blood that was shed for the other elders was also shed for the church. And so Peter's like, I'm not above you. We've all been washed in the blood. We've all, we're all sinners standing before the cross needing that work of Jesus. And we all have been partakers of that beautiful work that Jesus did on the cross. And he doesn't see himself as over or, or under. He sees himself as, I'm part of the group. And I love the fact because he goes on to say that, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly and not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Peter talks about shepherding. Shepherding the flock of God. Serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And then he says in verse 3, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. There's a balance that he's trying to teach them. One, he says, I want you to shepherd the flock of God. And when he wants him to, 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 to shepherd, keep in mind, it's shepherd not your flock. Shepherd's God's flock. You, you, you are, are, are brought by God to be a steward of his flock. You need to shepherd his flock. And so it's important that when you're shepherding anyone, and as a, as a parent, you're shepherding your children. As a grandparent, you're shepherding your grandchildren. They're not yours. They're God's. And, and you are shepherding the flock of God. And I think it's important that sometimes when, when ministers get a little bit too heady in their own heads thinking, oh, this is my church. These are my people. They're not. They're God's. 
And you're going to be accountable to God for, for what you do. And I think it's important, shepherd the flock of God. A couple of verses I want you to be aware of. The first is found in Revelation chapter 7, verse 17. Let me just read it to you. It makes a statement here. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living foundations, to, to the living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, the, the lamb who is in the midst, he's going to shepherd them. He's going to lead them. And I think it's important to realize that this is where our heart needs to be. This is where God wants us also to do. This term is a unique term, and it's found in one of the Gospels. Now, it's interesting that when you look to the, the term itself, when you look in a Strong's, you won't catch this truth, but when you look in an Englishman's concordance, this truth pops out pretty amazingly. When it says, shepherd the flock of God, there is that passage, and we've referred to it already, but in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, let me read to you what here the term shepherd actually is and how it's used. It's used the third time that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And what happens is this, in 1 John, chapter 21, verse 17, it makes this statement. Then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, and this is that term, feed my sheep. It's different than feeding my lambs. It's a whole different word. And when you look to this feed my sheep, it is, it is bringing them to a place where they can feed, bringing them to a place of safety where they can graze. So in a sense, you do have that, that mixture of the point, but it's shepherding the flock of God. It's bringing the flock to, to them. It's almost feeding this flock. And it's important that that is one of the keys to being a, a pastor teacher, a teaching elder, is to feed them. What is feeding? Feeding is simply giving them a balanced diet. And I think a balanced diet is this, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, that's a pretty balanced diet. See, if I had my druthers, if it was just up to me, what I would like to do is teach all the really wonderful passages and how much God loved me. And then I would just kind of skip on all the other ones about don't do this and don't do this and be careful and, you know, um, here's how to repent and here's how to confess and and, you know, um, wouldn't have messages like I did last Sunday. I'd have all the nice ones. But when you go verse by verse and you go chapter by chapter and you go book by book, all of a sudden that you begin to see the fullness of the heart of God. Because if we just talked about the love of God and the love of God, the love of God, then what do we do when the Holy Spirit convicts us and the Holy Spirit will convict us? I think it's important to recognize there's a difference between confession and repentance. Confession is just the, the word of the mouth, and it's an agreeing with God. But repentance is the turning of the sin. 
And so we, we look to this, and I think it's important that when Peter begins to say, shepherd the flock of God, give them this balance line, teach them, feed them, shepherd them, bring them to a place where they can partake and eat. But shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. In other words, we're a part of this. Serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. When he says serving as overseers, in other words, that you are called to be a watchman. You're, you're supposed to be looking over and, and watching to see what's going on. If something is going on that, that isn't. Because a lot of times where the warnings come in is there's going to be attacks against the church. Some of the attacks, attacks against the church are going to come from the outside. Some of the attacks of the church are going to come from the inside. And it's important for us as overseers, as pastors, as shepherds, as the elders to be aware of what's coming and be aware of what we're seeing. Now, as we become aware, as we begin to see what happens, the important thing is this is not to give what we think should be done in that situation. It's an important thing to look to the word of God, and not just a word that confirms what I want you to do, but it's the word of God that tells me what is the heart of God in this situation. What, what should we do? What should be our mindset on how we go about it? And I think this is important when we do this. So when we're as overseers, we're supposed to be watching. We're supposed to be looking to see what's going on. But he says not by compulsion, verse 2 at the end, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. He says not by compulsion. In other words, don't have people force you to do it. One God should simply call you, and it should be a desire of your heart to communicate. If it's not a desire of your heart, then you need to not communicate it. Wait till it becomes a desire. And keep in mind that even after it becomes a desire in your heart, that you need to be equipped on how to communicate those things. Because I've known a lot of people who have a great desire to communicate. They just don't have the gifting on to communicate. And you should have both. You should have this desire. But he says, not by compulsion. You should have this passion for communicating the word of God. I personally think I have it. Maybe sometimes you guys have seen this passion that I have as I teach. And, and, but we should. It should be this passion that we have. It should not be by compulsion. Oh, my goodness, here, I got I to gotta make another message here on Sunday or another teaching through Wednesday. It's, it's a joy. It's a joy to do these things. But he says it shouldn't be by compulsion, but willingly. You should have a heart to do these things. And he says, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. When he talks about not for dishonest gain, there's a, a passage that is, uses the same word in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. He's talking about the deacons at this point, but he makes this statement, likewise deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. And I think that's the better translation. Don't be greedy for money. Not for dishonest gain. 
I think what happens is maybe you have seen in times past and maybe you've even seen things recently where pastors will come up and say, oh, we need this and we need this and we need this. And, and they, they, they literally are, are begging for money. And yet you see them with three houses, you see them with cars and you see them with yachts and, and it's sad. When they're out on their missionary journeys, they're not going from, hey, could you put me up in your house? But they're, they're, they're renting the suites, the top floors of hotels. I mean, luxury suites. And they think, well, I'm here, and, and God wants me to relax, and this is the best way to do it. And so maybe you've seen that. And I think it's important that, that what, we, what we do is this, that, that we... Shepherd the flock, but don't do it so that you're saying, I'm doing this because I can make money. The real heart of a shepherd, and I'll share this with you, the real heart of a shepherd shouldn't be concerned or worried about what's in your wallet. The real heart of a shepherd should be concerned and worried about what's in your heart. And if they're concerned about your wallet, and, and maybe you've seen where there are churches where they will do a, an offering, and so they'll pass the plate, they'll pass a bag, and there's an offering, and eventually they'll pass that, and then the, the pastor will continue to teach, and eventually he'll either get a nod up or down, either, yep, we're good, or no, we're not. And if we're not, they'll pass the, the, the plate again. And they'll come through and he'll continue to teach. And, and if it's still not enough, they will pass the plate again. And they will do that until, yep, now, now we're okay, we're good. This, this is what we're after. And I think it's, it's a sad thing that when you have those that are concerned to say, I'm doing this to line my pocket. I'm doing this so that I can gain. Now keep in mind that a... Workman is worthy of his hire, and and I think it's 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 a good thing. Um, there are times where, when the church is doing well, I think it's okay for a pastor to be on staff. If the church isn't doing well, I think it's okay for the pastor to go and make tents. You do what you have to do, but you don't put a burden on the church. And there should never be a time where you begin to berate the church and say, listen, you people just need to give more because, you know, I don't have enough to make my rent or I don't have enough to put gas in my car. Or I don't have enough, you know, to put food on the table. And, and, and so my thought is if you don't, go to work, <laughs> get a job, do some, you know, odds and ends, do what you have to do, but you need to shepherd the church of God. And you need to not worry about what flows in and what flows out. You need to worry about what's in the heart and what you want to put in that heart. And I think that should be the key to where the shepherd should be. And so I love what Peter does as he looks to these elders and he's giving them a report card that anyone who's reading this letter now says, yep, he's okay here. Oh, man. 
you know you're a little eager for a paycheck. You're a little eager for the money. You're a little eager for this. And, and so it's, it's important to really go through and say, where's your heart in this thing? So do you have a love for the people? Do you consider yourself to be among the people or over the people? Do you want to and are you encouraged and do you have a desire to give them the word of God, a, a balanced teaching to shepherd them, not to lord over them, but to shepherd them? And then are you more concerned with what's in their wallet or are you more concerned with what's in their heart? These are great, great things that, that pastors need to look at and the body needs to look at and say, what's, what's my shepherd? What is his heart? But then he says this in verse 3, and this is where really where the rubber hits the road. He says in verse 3, not as being lords over those entrusted to you. Not being lords over them. So you need to shepherd this church of God, verse 2, but don't be a lord over those entrusted to you. What does it mean to be a lord over them? The term here is actually found in Matthew chapter 20. I want to read it to you, verses 25 and 26. But in Matthew 20, beginning in verse 25, Jesus called them to himself and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles, Lord, the same term, same phrase, same way it's used, Lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. He now says in verse 26, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. The question is, is what kind of a leader are you? Are you the one that says, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, or, or are you the servant, the one that, that goes and, and does the work, working right alongside them? Are you the overseer? Are you the overlord? Or are you simply one of the servants doing the work? But I think it's important, he says, not as being lords over. There's a passage found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. Jot it down for you note takers and let me read it to you. As Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, he says that not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. As Paul is saying, we don't have dominion over your faith. We're not the one controlling you. What we are is this. We're fellow workers for your joy. I have a desire for you to grow. I have a desire for you to have your heart opened up to the word and to the Holy Spirit, but I don't have dominion over you. And I think sometimes that's the, the, the issue that the, the pastor says, I can now, because of the authority that God's placed upon me, I can tell you what you should or what you should not be doing. There's a passage you should be aware of found in the book of Philemon. Two verses, just to be aware of, jot them down. Philemon verses 8 and 9. It says, therefore, this is Paul writing to Philemon, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting. In other words, don't worry about Onesimus. I could command you. 
Keep in mind that through me, you have salvation. Through me, Onesimus has salvation. And I could, as, as that authority, I could command you what is fitting. Yet, he says in verse 9, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged and now a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So you understand what Paul is doing? He said, I, I, could, I could use my apostolic authority to dictate to you what you should or should not be doing. However, what I would rather do is, for love's sake, let me appeal to you. Let me say, let's look at the heart of God. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to surrender to whatever Philemon wants to do. If you want to slay in this, he's yours. He's, he's your slave. You do what you have to do. And I think it's important that we are careful not to lord over. There's a passage that confuses a lot of people found in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And the reason it confuses is because there, there, there's not a lot of context behind it. And there's a couple of different thoughts that it could be. Now, let me just simply read this portion to you. But there's two places in the Word of God where we're supposed to hate something. And the Lord is, is glad because they hate something. And he says, boy, he says, I, I, I hate this thing too. He hates something. And it's found in Revelation chapter 2, verse 6. So for the, the, the church of Ephesus, he makes a statement. And I think it's, it's, it's intriguing here. In Revelation 2, verse 6, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And in verse 15, he says, as he's, he's there, writing now to the church of Pergamos, he makes this statement, Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So the question is, what is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? And, and so there are a lot of people who say it's, it's about uh, one of the, the, the early deacons, Nicholas, and, and they're saying that it has to do with that. But what's interesting is this, is the, the, the term is made up of two terms, two words. Nico and laity, which is interesting. Now, Nico, if you've, are, are, you have Nikes, you ever Nike? You don't know what Nike shoe is? Nico means victorious over. You're a conqueror. You now have authority. So it's kind of amazing. And Nicolaity, Nicolaitans, isn't from Nicholas, it's from Laity, and it actually has this term of saying that, that you are victorious over the laity. Now, if you're familiar with what the, the doctrines of the church is, the, you have the clergy. The clergy is the, the, the elders, the, the, um, the pastors, and the laity are the people who are there in the church, the, the, the body of the church. And it's interesting that that is one of the views that's there. Not, not saying that it has to be, but I find it absolutely intriguing that the one thing that Jesus hates is when a shepherd controls the laity controls the people. And it's always been his heart say, I don't want you controlling the people. And, and I think it's intriguing that what we see here 
through Peter and through his gospel that he doesn't want you to lord over or dominate the body of believers. And that's what it says here, not being lords over those entrusted to you, but being an example. Don't, don't dominate them. And I think what happens is there's a lot of times that a pastor is going to see certain things and the pastor may be frustrated about certain things and a pastor is going to, in a sense, berate his congregation from the pulpit. It's happened. And they, they use the pulpit and they use the words of the pulpit to try to control the body. Now, sometimes they try to control the body into a new doctrine that they want to follow. They control the body into an old doctrine that they want to follow. Like there will be some churches that rather than teaching simply through the, the word of God and saying this is the heart, but they begin to control you and say, I want to draw this body so that we become more like the Armenians, 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 so that we hold into the doctrine of that. Or, or we want to become Calvinists, and we want to hold into the doctrine of that. And you begin to sway and move rather than saying, this is what the Word of God says. So if, you, if people are coming here, there are some times where I've taught and they go, are, are you guys Armenians? Like, no, we're Christians. And there's other times like, wow, are you a Calvinist? No, we're Christians. But we, we teach what, what the Bible declares. And so where the, the people who follow the Armenians, where they lock into Scripture, we declare the truth of that Scripture. Where the Calvinists are there, we declare the truth of the Scripture. And so they're, they're, they're not antagonists. They're just wanting to be isolationist more than that. And I think it's important that as a, as a pastor, you don't try to control the body. And so if, if the body's doing something that you're frustrated with, then what do you do? What do you do? Well, well the answer is actually found in here in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, um, where it says in verse 3, nor is being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. <laughs> if you want your church to pray, be an example of how to pray. You want your church to be encouraged and, and excited about the word of God, then listen, be encouraged and be excited about the word of God. These are huge things. If you want your church to love, then example them how to love. And a lot of times what will happen is this, the, the church will take on the flavor of the pastor. And so if you have a church that's kind of at each other's throats, then it could be that the pastor is kind of at each other's throats. If you have a church that is just welcoming and loving, then hopefully the pastor is welcoming and loving. It's kind of cool when you say it sort of takes on that flavor. But I love the heart of it because he says, don't try to control them with a word. Don't try to control them to say, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And what happens is this, that if you are frustrated with the flock as a leader, in other words, as a parent, let's say you're frustrated with a child 
as a wife. You're frustrated with your husband. As a husband, you may be frustrated with your wife. And you begin to, in a sense, really begin to point out their failures. You're failing here and you're failing there. You're not doing this right. And in a sense, what you begin to do is this. You're actually putting a veil up between them and God. You're saying, you shouldn't be coming close to God because look at what you're doing here. You shouldn't be coming close. And all you're doing is you're pointing out their failures, their failures, their failures, rather than pointing out they're forgiven. And I think that's the key. How do you deal with other people? Are you there wanting to point out their failures and their failures and their failures? Or are you wanting to point out they're forgiven, they're forgiven, they're forgiven? See, what are you looking at? Are you looking at the person or are you looking at their sacrifice? And I think if you look at their sacrifice, you look at Jesus, see, what did Jesus do? Jesus shed his blood. He cleansed them. And I think it's important because what happens is there are going to be a lot of times where, where pastors are frustrated because this isn't happening and that isn't happening. And, and, and you have one of two choices. You can either be frustrated that it's not going the way that you think, or you could recognize, God, what do you want to do in my heart? through this, if, if it's not going the way that we think, what are you trying to do? And when you're walking with God and you're trusting God, you, you're not trying to berate your flock to say, you need to fix this, and you need to fix this, and you need to do this. You're, you're not doing that. And you're not belittling them saying that you're failing, you're failing, you're failing. Now, to be honest with you, when a new Christian comes to the Lord, and in their zeal, they learn a passage. And what they want to do is, as the Holy Spirit has convicted them of their learning for the first time, that there's power in prayer. They go, oh my goodness, there's just power in prayer. And I love just spending time with God. And this new believer is excited about prayer. And then he starts looking at everybody else in their prayer life saying, you're not praying enough. You're not praying the right way. You got to be praying like this. Pray without ceasing. Pray, you know, and then like, Okay, it's really nice, but you're, you're doing what? You're putting up a, a veil. You're putting up a wall between them and God. You're not doing this right. You're not doing this right. Rather than, are you praying the way the Holy Spirit is talking to you? I think that's important. Because to some, the Holy Spirit is going to give a gift, and he'll give a gift of prayer. To some, we are going to pray, and, and it's going to be small prayers, but meaningful prayers. Others, we're going to have a longer time with God, and we're going to understand what it is to listen more than talk. But through all this, it's, it's one of those things, be careful how you berate someone. And new Christians, if you've ever seen them in their zeal, they're always trying to fix the other person. You've got to be doing this, and you have to be reading more. You have to be you know, praying more, you have to be witnessing more, and they're always giving you what you should be doing so that you realize how much you're failing. And yet Jesus says, I want you to realize how much I love you. And that when you talk about someone who understands failures, Peter understands failures, and yet he's loved, and he knows he's loved. And so as we come to this, I think it's important where Peter makes this statement. It's a statement. It's a needed, necessary statement where he says, I, I want you not to be lords over those entrusted to you. Now, keep in mind, they're entrusted to you. You're a steward of them. They're not yours. They're just given to you for the season. Don't lord over them like the Gentiles exercising authority. Paul says, we're, we're, we're not having authority over you. We're not the ones who are controlling in this way. 
And I love it how, how Paul says, you know, listen, we, we do not have dominion over you and over your faith. God is going to deal with that work. I'm going to lead you to God. God's going to speak to you. But it's important to be examples to the flock. Be an example. If you're recognizing that your pastor's not a servant, and you really need to pray about, wow, do I need to find a pastor who really understands? He's a servant. He's not the Lord over. Pastor who prays. Pastor who loves the word. And so we see this when, when everything is done in verse 3. It says, being examples to the flock. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And I love it because there is a chief shepherd. We're, we're, we're shepherds, yes, make, make no mistake. But there is a chief shepherd, and I'm not him. You were truly purchased by the chief shepherd. He shed his blood for you. You're his. And I'm here in this, this season to, to teach and to draw you as much as the Spirit you know, brings or enables us to look to the word and to draw us to the Lord. But it's important that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So in other words, be careful. Don't be one of those servants as my master delays his coming. Begin to beat your fellow servants saying, oh, I'm, you know, I, I can do whatever I want to do. I have authority. I can lord over you. So, eh, be careful. Because when he comes, he finds you doing that you're going to be the one who's going to reap the consequences. But it's important to look to the chief shepherd, and, and that is the heart of God, and that's what he wants us to, to recognize. There's a passage dealing with the chief shepherd. I want to read it to you. Found in Ezekiel chapter 34. A few verses that I'm going to read to you. I'm going to start in verse 11. I'm going to read down to verse 17, but it says this, For thus says the Lord God, after he deals with all of these false shepherds that fleece the flock. Ezekiel 34, 11, For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day that he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and I will deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people and I will gather them from the countries and I will bring them to their own land and I will feed them. You understand? He says, I'm going to bring you out of the world. I'm going to bring you into me. I'm going to be the one to feed you. In verse 14, I will feed them in a good pasture, and the fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel, and they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pastures. And on the mountains of Israel, I will feed my flock, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God, and I will seek what was lost, and I will bring back what was driven away. I will bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. So be careful, those that are haughty, those that are proud. But as for you, O my flock, thus says the Lord, behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. And so ultimately, we'll all stand before God. And, and it's not going to be the shepherd who's going to judge you. It's going to be the chief shepherd. And then, to be honest with you, he's already said, I've already taken your sins away. I see you as perfect. You're in me. 
So be careful that as you come up when the chief shepherd appears. And, and I think this is a really, really good report card for any elder, for anyone who's wanting leadership positions. And now he moves on in verse 5. says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. So in other words, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. But younger people, submit yourself to the elders. In other words, they may not have the new and improved way of doing things but they may have a true way of doing things. Because sometimes the new and improved actually leave the foundational truths. It's not to say that you can't do new and improved while you still stay on the foundation. But a lot of times the new and improved, they actually leave the foundational teachings and they move on. In other words, let's try to bring this into the context of the church. There are some people who do believe that scripture or worship should be by an organ. That if you are going to worship, you should have an organ in church. And that's why, because timbrels and pipes, right? Organs have pipes. That's what you should do. But then they also talk about strings. So can you use guitars? Can you use tambourines? And there's some people who think that worship should not change from the organs. You shouldn't now have guitars. You shouldn't have drums. You shouldn't have anything else. You should just simply have the organ. That's how you worship correctly. And when you worship, it should always be old hymns. Now, to be honest with you, there's a lot of really good worship that aren't old hymns. They're, they're, they're new, but they're of God and they're of his heart. But then there's another part of worship that it's all about I, 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 I. It's all about me. It's not about him. Like, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And I think, is that really what you want worship to be? Do you want worship to say, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing? I want worship to say, this is what he's doing. And when it comes to new worship, this is what I think is, is good about worship. The old hymns are doctrinally accurate. They are powerful in their doctrine. And I think the new hymns, what they do is this. The ones that are most powerful take scripture, what God declares of himself, and then they declare it to God. And I think how amazing is that when they take the, the, the scriptures, they take the Psalms, and they, they bring it into the more modern music. And, and so I think that's important. So keep in mind that the younger people, you may think there, there's another way to do this. And the older people, don't be so set in your ways to think, yeah, okay, let's try out the drums. Let, let's, let's try out bongos. Let's do something a little different. I think it's okay. So don't be so set in your ways, but at the same time, the, the elders would say, we can adapt this and utilize things new, but we don't want to leave the foundational truths. We don't want to leave just the, 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 what Scripture declares of God. I think that's, that's an important thing. So when we look to this, it's one of those things where younger people submit yourselves to your elders. But then he says this, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. In other words, listen to the, 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 the younger kids because they sometimes have a way of 
saying, let's keep the foundation, but let's change it in such a way that we're reaching out to my generation as well. Because if the church is simply, you know, just a bunch of old people, eventually they're all going to die. You've got to have new blood coming in and, and new life coming in and be raising up new leadership within. And so it's, it's an important thing to say, yeah, younger people first, don't leave the foundation. Submit yourselves to your elders. But all of you be submissive to one another. In other words, learn, grow what it is to, you know, ad- adapt into how can we reach this next generation without losing or leaving the foundation that we know is true. And there's a balance to that. And that's where all of us are being submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. So don't think, this is the way we've done things for the last 30 years, so this is what we're going to do. Why change it? If it ain't broken, don't fix it. It's like, yeah, but to be honest with you, I am really, really grateful that we're still not all driving Model Ts. If it wasn't broke, why fix it? Well, let's adapt it. Let's get a little better. I'm glad that we're no longer having to simply just write out the messages and mail them. Well, you could put them on an AM radio wave. Yes, you can. Then you could put on FM. Then you can actually do what? Then you could put them on a tape. You could put on a CD. Now we can just live stream it. Now we're live streaming video. And it it gets worse. Now we're actually live streaming high-def video. So I apologize. This is what I look like. (laughs) And you adapt. You you move on. You you, you stream. You you do these things. And and it's, it's one of those things, but you have to be clothed with humility. Don't think that it's you know the only way to do things. Be open to the leading of the Spirit. But don't change the foundations of... It has to be Christ, and it has to be set up in Scripture, and so we, we look to that. And it goes on to say here in verse 5, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He, he, he truly does. And, and, and with the proud, there's, there's God says, I can't do a work because you already think you know what to do. But to the humble, it's like you're going to be seeking my face, and of course I can do it. And so with that proud, he resists. Good example have you ever heard of a man named Pharaoh? They're in the book of Exodus. Well, Pharaoh was a man who was proud. He was a man who was not going to give in. And God had a way of humbling him through one sign after another sign after another sign to eventually he knew who God was. He started out by saying, who is God that I should listen and obey his voice? After that, he said, oh, you're God. <laughs> you do what you want to do. I'll let your people go. But it's important, God does resist the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. It's one of those things where regardless of where you are in that place of leadership, that you should have a role in humility. As we look to this where it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Remember at the end of verse 5 where he says, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Clothed with humility for God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. What does it mean to be clothed with humility? I think Peter here is uniquely 
a person to understand what it was for Jesus to be clothed with humility. There's a passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. And in John chapter 13, I want to begin to share with you how this portion of Scripture opens up. But I want you to pay attention to verse 3 and 4 initially. It begins this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. This is Jesus. The Father has given him all authority over all things. That's a pretty amazing thing. So here's the question. If tomorrow God says, listen, I have given you all authority over all things, what would you do? I mean, after you send me the email on how to fix my teachings. I know what you're supposed to say, and I know what you're supposed to do. And when you have all authority over all things, and you realize I am now at the top of the list. This is Jesus right now. And understand that after supper, we begin to see Jesus knowing in verse 3, knowing with an absolute clarity of knowledge the Father had given all things into his hands, that he come from God and was going to God. Notice what he does with all authority. Notice what he does. It says in verse 4, he rose from supper, he laid aside his garments, he took a towel and he girded himself. Peter knows what it is to be clothed with humility. This is what Jesus, he has all authority. Everything's been given into his hand. And what does Jesus do? He lays aside his garment. He takes a towel. He girds himself. He pours water into a basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet and wash them with the towel with which he was girded. This is clothed in humility. This is, is looking to the Lord and saying, God, I want you to be glorified. I want you to be exalted. And you don't position yourself above, but you consider yourself a servant. And that's why here in verse 6, you know, Peter says, therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Casting all your cares, in other words, casting all your worries. Put all your worries there before the Lord. You don't have to Hold them, just give them to God. It's the easiest way to do it. You don't have to hold on to all these things. You don't have to worry about all these things. Just allow God himself to say, God, it's all yours. I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm just going to everything. I'm just going to acknowledge you. In Psalm 55, verse 22, it makes a statement, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. Same thing, same idea. But in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 32, we begin to see here that, that Jesus is speaking, declares this, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body, what you shall put on. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows you have need of all things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added. See, when you're worrying about what's going to happen, what's going to happen, and so often we worry about things that haven't even happened yet. Well, it could happen, so I'm going to worry. Don't worry about what could happen. Just go with what is. And what, what is is God is saying, hey, I'm sanctifying your heart with this. You're going to draw near to me with this. No, this is where I'm going to draw you. And I think it's just so important that, that we cast all of our cares upon him. Why? He cares. Don't, don't think that he doesn't. He cares for the birds. He cares for the flowers of the field. He cares for you. In fact, he cares for you so much that he went to the cross. He died for your sins so that we could forever, forever be with him. And then he makes this statement in verse 8. He changes it up a little bit where he says, Be sober, vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So he talks about here, be sober, be vigilant. In other words, sober-minded, be, be aware that these things are going to happen. Be vigilant. In other words, always be watching to see where the, the enemy's coming from. Because he walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And it makes a statement. It doesn't say fight against him. It doesn't say pray against him. It just simply says resist him. What does it mean to resist him? Well, let me tell you what my idea of resisting him running to God. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. So you say what you say, I'm going to just run into the arms of my father and I'm going to let him deal with you. I love in the book of Judy talks about Michael, the archangel. When disputing over the, the body of Moses there, he simply didn't bring about a reviling accusation against Satan, but he simply said, the Lord rebuke you. The best of the best doesn't want to rebuke the worst of the worst. Simply says, let God deal with you. Let his word deal with you. It's not my job. Then if the best of the best doesn't rebuke the worst of the worst, then why should we who are in the middle rebuke others who are in the middle? So I'm thinking it's one of those things where resist him. Steadfast in the faith. You understand is I'm walking what God calls me to walk, not, not what I think I should do. And there's a lot of times when we think this is how I resist the enemy, resist the enemy. Understand that, that, that he, although he is toothless, we'll put it that way, which is why he's a roaring lion, not a biting lion, he still has wiles. And, and his whole thing is I'm just going to just allow you to be tripped up. And, and sometimes the tripping up holds two different ways. Sometimes he says, oh, I'm going to give you this, I'm going to give you this, I'm going to give you this. And so we were, we're caught up with certain things. And to some, we're, we're, we, we take the bite, we take the lure, and we're caught up and we're, we're, we're pulled away. But others, he doesn't say, take this, take this, take this, because we're, we're smarter than that. But sometimes he says this, don't try to give them things to entice them. 
just simply tell them that they have time. I don't have to do it right now. I can wait a little while. I'll do it tomorrow. Like the Pharaoh, I'll take another night with the frogs, please. Let's not get rid of them now. And I think sometimes the enemy kind of says, we, we have time, we have time, we have time. And it isn't, there's, there's different types of ways that, that he tries to hook us up. And, and I think a lot of times the way to get a Christian to get off of where it says, be vigilant and sober is thinking, I got time. I don't have to do this now. It's not desperate now. But understand, Resist him, verse 9, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We all suffer through things. The enemy tempts us. Our own flesh tempts us. The world. And then he moves this into verse 10. But may the God of all grace, who called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. He says, after you've suffered, don't worry, because you'll be perfected through it. You'll be solid on your foundation. You'll be strengthened because of it, and God is going to settle you. He's going to, he's going to set you in that place of security. And a lot of times, that's what's happening with, with, with the, the, the suffering. There was a wonderful story about what comes out of suffering. And it talked about this. There was an older man speaking to a younger man, and the, the younger man wanted to be strengthened. And that's what, really what he wanted. He said, I want to I grow. I want to be strong. And the, young, the older man says, this is what I want you to do. He took him out to the side of a hill, and he showed them this huge, massive rock. He says, I want you to push on that rock. Push with your arms, push with your legs, push with your back, push on that rock. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year went by, and the rock never budged. And eventually the young man was absolutely frustrated. And he came, he says, listen, he says, I haven't even budged that rock. He said, I didn't tell you to budge the rock. I told you to push against the rock. How are your arms? And they were strong. He was pushing and pushing, and, and his legs were strong, and his back was strong because he was pushing against something that, that couldn't be moved. He's, sometimes we think, I haven't had any victory. Oh, you've got what you've needed. You're strengthened. And this is what God does. He strengthens us. He perfects us. He establishes us. He strengthens us. He settles us. And it's, it's resisting. And I think this is what happens, like that pushing against a rock constantly. And then verse 11, after all that, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. The authority, the, the position of authority. And he says, by Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly. So the one who's scrolling down the words, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. He's saying, this is grace. Now, Peter understands grace. He understands forgiveness. He understands the glory. He understands what God is doing. He says, I'm telling you in this letter, this is the true grace of God. So she who is in Babylon, verse 13, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Now, it's interesting that there are commentators and they try to 
they have paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs of what is Babylon. Some say Babylon is Rome. Some say Babylon is Babylon. And to be honest with you is you choose what you want to believe. They're, they're, they're both. So some say that Rome is, is spiritual Babylon. That could very well be. There was actually a Babylon Babylon where there were actually believers. He could have been there. Um, so I'm not sure where the Babylon is. It says Babylon, so I'm just going to do it. Whether Babylon is a reference to Rome or Babylon is a reference to Babylon, I, to be honest with you, that doesn't change anything that I've learned in this epistle. And if I'm going to get sidetracked and forget everything that I've learned in this epistle to try to argue what this Babylon is, I, I've lost it. I've absolutely lost it then. And, and people do. But they say, and I think it's important, this is where she, who is in this place, elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark, my son. We're here in this place. Spiritual Babylon, actual Babylon, you, you determine what it is. And then he says, greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to all you who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so within this, there was this greeting that was common there in that place. Now, some of us think that, okay, this is what I need to do. I need to greet one another with a kiss of love. Um, in the early church, there were issues with this. Young men would kiss young women with a, here, kiss of love. And they were taking advantage of it. So eventually what the early church began to do is say, okay, guys, you kiss the guys, girls, you kiss the girls. I want to avoid that one too. <laughs> well, what I, what I think is important is, is that in, in the way of, of doing this is there are some people who manufacture it and some people who I think are truly sincere in this. You could say, greet one another with a holy handshake. That's kind of what we do. Um, I don't have an issue with that. I think, you know, hugging the brothers are, are a good thing. Hugging the sisters is a very rare thing. And I think it should be for me. And not, not for the sisters, <laughs> for me, for the brothers. And so I think you just greet one another. I think this is the key. Because you, you don't see the greet one another with a kiss in the, the, the Old Testament. They're in the, 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 the Gospels. They're in the book of Acts. And then Paul teaching exactly how to kiss there in his epistles. You, you, don't, you don't see it. So the, this, this, this kiss of love is, is something. It's, it's, it's a greeting. It's, it's what they were. Now, maybe you've seen cultures that they'll do the, the kiss on this side of the cheek and the kiss on that side of the cheek, and it's, 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 it's a kiss. It's one of those greeting things. Um, to be honest with you, that's something that God is still working out in me. There was one brother, I've shared it before, his name was Frank, and he would do that to me. He would come up and he would kiss me on my cheek. And, and he was an older brother, and I loved him. Um, just, but he was sincere, sincere, and, and it just bothered me and bothered me and until one day, one day, the most strangest things happened. He kissed me on the cheek, and I wanted to kiss him back, sincerely, just in love, and I did, and I did, and after Frank, there's never been another brother who I felt sincere and wanting to do that. I, it can happen, but I don't think it should be a norm within the church. I think we should greet one another with, with, with zeal and with peace and, and, and with love. I think those are all things. Now, you can do that with a handshake. You can do that with a hug. You can do that in, in many, many ways. Um, 
Does it have to be a kiss? I've been exhorted by many fellow Christians thinking that I should. Um, I haven't seen it where it's the doctrinal way that we should do it. It's a greeting. Greet one another in love. Greet one another, all you who are in Christ Jesus. I think we should greet one another with the love of Christ, and that's important. Um, the way that it looks, I think culturally we're a little different now. Um, now, if you guys want to kiss me, then what I would recommend is this. We have um, hand sanitizers that are out there now because of COVID. Just douse it in your hand, rub it all over your face, and once it's worked in, then come and say, listen, I've worked it in for 15 minutes, and, and then, then we'll discuss whether it, it's that, that thing to do. So, um, but greet one another with love. I think it's important um, that the look of it, Peter in their time was, was, yeah, let's do it. But the early church are people taking advantage of it. So if it's, if it's got to be a kiss and make it sincere, make it of the Lord. Um, I was kissed tonight um, by, by a dear saint. Thank you. And it was beautiful. I did not kiss her back. Um, one day I may, and I have, I have, I've, I've, I've done it. But um, it is one of those things where there are very few, few instances in which, which that, that happens. And so, um, but when it does, uh, um, I think it needs to be sincere. So if there's young men who want to take this and say, I need to kiss the young girls, not going to happen. We're going to have the elders correct you, and you need to then submit yourselves to them under the, the, the guidance that they give. So um, let's pray before I dig a hole too deep. <laughs> Father, in your grace, in your grace, we thank you. We love you. You are so good. We do thank you for this word. We thank you for, God, I, I thank you that there is uh, this passage that gives a report card that truly that they can look and they can say, yeah, um, my, my pastor does this, my pastor does this, and I'll pray for my pastor because I, I, I see that he's not doing this well. So thank you, Lord, for who you are and how you work and, and your grace in doing this. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit that does quicken and does teach. And, and, and Lord, all of us need to grow. And help us, Lord, to grow um, so that we can reach this next generation. It's, my heart is burdened. I know many of my brothers and sisters were burdened too, that we can reach this next generation, that we could see them grow and, and train them up. That, that this which is solid and sure will continue if you tarry. Oh, that is our heart. So do the work within us. Do the work within us, we ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, amen. amen.